Hello and welcome back to this episode of Ness and Dorma. This is the final episode of our 35th anniversary deep dive into the European Championships of 1988. On this week's show, we'll look at the final between the Netherlands and the USSR, as well as reassessing the tournament. Was it some kind of philosophical stamp on the game itself, or just a tournament in and of itself, and with plenty of moments, two of which we will speak about, I am sure, this afternoon. I'm joined, as always, by Rob Smythe. How are we, Rob? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Gary Neal is here as well. Yes, nice to be here too. And Jonathan O'Brien is back, whose book, Eurosummits, we have absolutely plundered for all our information. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hi, lads. Good to meet you again. Uh, Okie dokie. This is the final then. Um... Rob, I'll start with you. This is in um, Munich and the, the Olympiastadion. Uh, having a look at the kind of preview, the kind of preambles of the time, unsurprisingly, the main kind of narrative drive is um, Renus Mikkels and what happened there 14 years ago. It's too tempting to avoid. Yeah, exactly. It was too perfect, wasn't it? Same stadium, same manager. Uh, a Netherlands team that probably most neutrals wanted to win. They'd obviously lost the World Cup finals to West Germany in 74. Very famous game that kind of the story of the game is that Netherlands went 1 0 up, tried to humiliate West Germany and were unluckily beaten 2 1. I'd say it's a bit more nuanced than that, but ultimately, it's, yeah, it's such a famous game and it was such a, a kind of defining moment until then in their history. Um, but yeah, exactly. The only other thing I thought was quite interesting about the build-up was the few contrasts between Marco Van Basten and Oleg Protasov, the two centre-forwards. And some people at that stage had Protasov ahead of Van Basten, um, specifically Harry Harris from the Daily Mirror. I don't know what it stands for, but it's interesting that he was that highly rated. And that even at this point, after such a great tournament, Van Basten was still not, not entirely recognised as the great player he would become in about an hour's time. Yeah. Um... Saturday 25th of June, Gary, is the, the date for this final. Um, shown both live by ITV and BBC, much, it's surely much to the consternation of non-football fans at the time, with only four channels with which to, to choose from and half of them showing exactly the same game. Um, but interestingly, in the BBC, this game is on a Saturday afternoon and with all tournament games, World Cup or European Championships, it would be part of Grandstand. It wouldn't be... It's separate, set alone show. This would go up, I'm sure, to 1998 anyway. I do remember World Cup grandstand bringing in Spain versus Nigeria from France. Um, and that, that that's a different world, really, just in terms of how dominant football is, because you'd now be expecting a major final, the build-up to be at least 90 minutes, maybe even two hours. But if you're tuning in on that Saturday to BBC One at 10 to 2, 2 o'clock, even 10 past 2, you'd be watching touring cars or the the rally championships, um, the British Midlands Scottish Open um, rally championship to be precise, up until about 20 past two before they even started talking about the final. Um, change days. Yes, well, it would take 18 years or more before we left an Ashes test at a critical moment in order to take in the 245 from Chepstow. So um, they, they were different days. Um some of us were just glad that we didn't have a choice of rugby league from uh, Bradford, um, Odsel, uh, sorry, Lee, or um, wrestling from Doncaster with Kent Walton, which would be uh, the 
standard fare, perhaps on a Saturday afternoon between the BBC's uh, grandstand and world of sport. But yes, there was just less information around, wasn't there? So there was kind of, we went into this spiral of the 24-7 news cycle, which has its own sort of sports element to it where because there wasn't that much to talk about there wasn't that much to talk about and so you you just expected you know the 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 team sometimes you didn't even get the teams you certainly didn't expect any kind of tactical nuance but you'd have some of the goals from earlier in the tournament you might have some discussion of the uh the point that uh Rob has just made about the possible redemption for 74. But the idea was that um, there were three blokes in the studio, usually white middle-aged men wearing a shirt and tie, who uh, who told you that uh, the match coming up was the Euro 1988 final, probably the European Championships 1988 final. If you had Bobby Charlton on, it would be the European Nations Championships mm. or something that he always insisted upon calling it. Um, but we just get on with it. You know, the top of the bill was the football, and uh, the football was what was provided. And to be fair, and I'll finish on this point, the football was often presented quite clean. Um, there was a commentator. They showed the match. There was instant replays of the stuff that was important. But it was not poured over and analysed in-game. And he didn't have Jermaine Genus telling us that he's run forward and he's taken a shot and it's gone over the bar. And for that, we must be grateful. Yeah, Jimmy Hill's on co-coms for the BBC and only when absolutely needed is he brought in to actually bring any kind of um, contribution. It's, um, yeah, Andy Gray is just around the corner here. Uh, Jonathan, um, Rob will give the teams in a moment and we'll, we'll maybe talk about how this did impact the game um, uh, later on in the show. But the the absence of, of Oleg Kuznetsov must have been the the, the big actual football story going into this because that, that that appears on paper at least going into this match is a is a huge loss. Yeah, um Kuznetsov was a fantastic player. He'd been in the team three or four years at that stage. Um he fell victim to a rule that I think they got rid of shortly after Euro 88. This thing that if you had a booking in the qualifiers, it got carried over into the finals. So if you got booked even once in the finals you'd miss the next match. And Kuznetsov went through the back of an Italian player in like the first or second minute of the semi-final in Stuttgart, and that was him gone. Now he ended, he played very well after, as as players who pick up a suspension often do. They play out their skin for the remainder of the of the, yeah. of the ninety minutes, but he was out, and so Lovanovsky had to reshuffle his uh, shuffle his pack uh, quite a bit. I think he brought in um, Sergei Gotsmanov, who was a midfielder from Belarus. Uh, Good player and uh, was involved in a pivotal incident in the match later on, as we we'll, as we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, losing obviously losing your best defender isn't ideal, and it meant that Van Basten got got that got that bit more space at various points in the match. And again, as we'll see, that that uh, that proved decisive because uh, Netsov was a very very good player. He, he got signed by Rangers later on, and he was beset by injuries his whole time there. Uh, Walter Smith said something like. Um, I think Kuznetsov picked up a terrible injury against St. Johnston and was out for months, maybe even the guts of a year. And Smith goes, I've after signing a world-class player and these hammer throwers have put him out for the season. <laughs> Which was a little bit rich coming from Walter Smith, if, if I may say so. But, um, yeah, a very good player and uh, the USSR would diminish without him. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I think that was Graham Sunnison. Well, people can draw their own conclusions about Hamill throwing and, and, and midfield challenges. But um, yeah, because uh, Netsov just, he, he strolled through the, the, the tournament up to then. 
And to be honest, so did the USSR from from that 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 opening. They look brighter. They they they, they, they look. To my eyes, anyway, um, guys, is, is more of a unit. They look far more cohesive. Um, um, Protosov straight uh, sent through. Belenov sent through. Uh, Luchenko was a, a again one of these famous Euro eighty shots from range. Um, but the the long passing um, it, it strikes me as something rather than just a hopeful long ball up the top. Um, these are direct. These are with a, a, a particular plan, and it looks really effective, Rob. Yeah, I think that's a great point. They're, they're kind of it's slow, slow, classic slow, slow, quick, isn't it? All the long balls. I'll just quickly um, go through the teams. So the Netherlands unchanged again, which they had been, I think, since the England game. Um, Van Broek, four, kind of four, four, one, one. Van Broeklen in goal, Van Arla, Koeman, Rijka, Van Tegelen, Vandenberg, Valters, Erwin Koeman and Muren. And they'd switched, and I've forgotten to check this for West Germany game, but they certainly at some point in the tournament switched those two. So Muren went to the left and Koeman came in field. Which I guess is possibly because he's a bit more rugged and mobile, because US side so many players in central midfield. Anyway, Hullick started kind of roaming and Van Basten off on his own, really, for a long time, uh, partly because Mikos had told him to stay up. They wanted to have the option of a long ball to beat the press, um, which is interesting in itself because of you know the whole total football myth and so on. Anyway, US side, so actually, I think it was Belanov who came in for Kuznetsov because Belanov had missed the semi through injury, um, and that meant a big reshuffle. So in the semi, they'd have five midfielders. Here they have Belanov and Elenikov went into defence, which was quite costly because I think they missed him in midfield and he didn't have a great game either. So anyway, it was the other change was at right back, Demianenko for Besanov, who was injured. Um, Protosov also was not fully fit, had a big bandage on his thigh. But anyway, the team was Das Desayev, Demianenko, Elenikov, Kiriachulin, Vasily Rats. Midfields, sort of diamond-ish, Litovchenko, Zavarov, Mikhailichenko, Gotsmanov, and then Belanov and Protosov up front. So yeah, those were the teams. And that 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 Soviet pressure and impetus um, eventually kind of subsided a wee bit. Then the Netherlands got back in the game. They had a good free kick. Um, Hulet, it's well struck, but it's quite central um, and it, it's tipped over the bar. And from that corner, of course, we 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 get our first goal. Ball played in. Ball played back out uh, and then swung in Van Basten with um, great awareness and great composure just to um, cushion it back into the onrushing Rutula in acres of space there Jonathan I, I would suggest is the first example of that that Kuznetsov loss that is incredible space to be providing in, in, in that box and he thunders at home it doesn't look like there's a lot on the ball you know you know those kind of thunderheaders were, were really guys are just almost kind of using the ball but it's hanging there and then this just um, kind of weaponized neck um, really um, cannons that ball into the, to the, the back of the net and, and he's off and running um, John Watson gets a wee bit carried away calls him Rudy Hill I don't know if he was mixing him up with Rudy Voller perhaps um, but a man on whom there had been a lot of pressure Jonathan a lot of talk a lot of hype most expensive player in the world blah 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 um, had been relatively quiet um, but he was explosive then but I, I can't get away with just how much space he's, he's got to work with yeah, um, the Soviets all ran out to play offside, so the, the goal mouth is basically empty when Van Basten knocks it back across. And Hullet was always great in the air, obviously, given his size and physical power, as well as all his other gifts. Um, and he couldn't miss really. That's it, had no chance whatsoever of stopping from that kind of range. Um, the um, what was I going to say? Hullet had um, 
he had been decent but not great in the group games and against the Germans he was awful. He, he hardly did, did anything. He was marked out of the game by a little fellow called Uli Borovka who was from Werder Bremen, I think. And Borovka, um, I think, only had six caps for Germany and four of them were in Euro 88. Uh, but he did a real job on Hullet. So there was real pressure on Hullet to deliver this time and, uh, of course, he did, belatedly. Can we just pause on this 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 issue? I'll come to you, Gary Foster. Mm-hmm. This issue of hype and pre-tournament hype. There's always got to be someone around which the the the, the preamble is is centered, and it's usually around a most expensive player, especially if that that transfer fee is is quite you know um, close to, to 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 recent memory. Who it takes it here? Um, there are even I'll go back to. Um, Graham Souness again, on the eve of Mexico, on Scotland's training camp, almost saying, well, you know, Maradona's a bit overrated, isn't he? I mean, what I mean is he's very good at tricks, but he's not won very many medals. It's a lot of hype around this. Um, there's always someone um, kind of carrying um, carrying that weight. Nothing's changed, um, I, I don't think, in the, in the intervening time. Um, but is it was it simply a... a a price tag thing. If he'd if he'd gone to Milan for for maybe a kind of better deal, um, oh. wee bit more under the radar, would there have been so so much um, noise around around him? Well, uh, do you want me to take that, to yes, Martin? Yeah, um, I think, and I may have mentioned this when uh, in a previous episode. I'm pretty sure that Hullet played in a friendly at Wembley against England. I think it was a two-two, um, or it was something like that, but. He obviously is a striking figure on the pitch, especially with the, the full dreads that he was sporting then. And he did a, a post-match interview uh, at a time when English footballers were, you know, made Harry Kane sound like Peter Houston of, you know. Um, they they And he was so eloquent and he was so much of I'm a huge star without that... Uh, that arrogance. Had he been German, perhaps we would wouldn't have been quite so keen on him. But that that interview made a difference. As did his performance. Um, the price tag is obviously part of it. But the other thing that I found in reading the um, contemporary previews and reports is, and there's no easy way of saying this, just how eroticized they made Hullet. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's kind of. Partly the idea of the, the the kind of noble savage, which was around in the art world eighty odd years earlier, and partly the, these middle aged men who who just cannot resist eroticizing uh, a black man playing for for the Netherlands. Um, Can I give it, you a quote? Like a lot. Go on, Rob. Just a quick quote on that from the Daily uh, the Mirror report from of the final: the Black Adonis for the Rastafarian dreadlocks are the talent that was sent from heaven. If he's not the world's best player, God knows who is. And I said it to you lads yesterday, but it reminds me so much of David Brent saying, do you know who my favourite actor is? Yeah, anyway, sorry, go on. But it, but it wasn't just, you know, the, the red tops looking for a bit of sensationalism. It was also, you know, McIlvanny and David Lacey. They, they, they all cannot resist this, um, this eroticising of, the, of the, the male body there. I mean, at 1988 at the time, I was reading a bit of kind of feminist literature and stuff like that. I, I think I was reading stuff by Andrea Levy, I think it is, and... and Susan Brown Miller and things like that. So maybe I was more attuned to it then. But reading it back now, it just seems, as you say, it seems almost 
a parody of, of what middle-aged white men uh, consider when confronted with a educated, talented, uh, six-foot-two, six-foot-three black man. Um, but that was the way of the world then. Um, I think it's difficulty, there are difficulties in judging past times by present mores, but you can't you can't kind of let it pass. And when that goal goes in and there's that flash of uh, dreadlocks uh, as uh, the ball hits the back of the net, you can just hear the size in the press box, or at least I could. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it is one of the many differences. The past is a foreign country, and boy, does it look foreign at that moment. Rob, I mean, was Hulett's... Um reputation justified at that time he had I mean, he had been very good especially for PSV I think he's scored more than 20 goals a season in his two years at PSV I think he scored how many did he score for Milan 13 uh, in all competitions in that first season which is no mean feat in, in Italy after this moment other than uh, perhaps a, a, a nice encore at Sampdoria years later He's he he obviously has injury problems as well, but those those numbers don't follow. Where does Hulett no, sit? No. Was it justified then? And you know, we, we're we're looking back. Where does he sit on the general I think, pantheon? I think it was definitely justified then. <clears throat> Milan have won the league. He'd been inspirational. Uh, I think he was a Ballon d'Or holder. I'm pretty sure he was. Um, as you said, he didn't have a great tournament, but I thought he was really good in this game and. The other thing, which I think is important and quite interesting, given what happened in his managerial career, is it seems like he was a really, really impressive leader and part of the reason they were so um, harmonious. Um, and he also did a lot of donkey work. Like, weirdly, one of my kind of recurring images of the tournament is Rude Hullet heading away long throws and set pieces. Like, it's just, it's just everywhere. But anyway, mm-hmm. as for he, subsequently, I mean, of course, he had his moments. He scored that fantastic goal when they thrashed Stoyer in the European mm-hmm. Cup finals, got a lovely goal. Tally 90, but like a lot of this team, I mean, he did, he had massive injury problems, didn't he? Um, which didn't help. And probably his reputation was never as high as it was at this point. And in tournament terms, didn't do a huge amount. So he scored that. We got said in 90, played okay in 92, pulled out in 94. Huge disappointment in 90, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, he I, I think the whole he team. Amazing was, goal against Ireland. He went past about yeah, three lovely, or four. Smashed one yeah. low into the corner. He didn't, he really didn't do a whole lot. Otherwise, and that's just as an aside, and it's want to make a couple of points on the goal in a minute. But the kind of the prevailing theme of the reports here and the comments of both managers that this final was football from the future. Um, and you go forward two years and they were the two biggest flops at Italian 90. So it just shows you sometimes you just, you just don't know. I mean, the point stands, you know, the way they played was from the future, and I sort of get that, but sometimes you just, you, yeah, you just don't know what's going to come around. Um, a couple of quick things on the goal. Van Basten's head over cross, I'd always thought was fairly routine. But if you sit from behind the goal, I think it's fantastic. He's jumping backwards and he has to properly strain his neck muscles, like really strain them to get across to Hullet. And the reason Hullet's so much space is because of Alenikov playing centre-back. Now, mm-hmm. it's not because he's playing centre-back because it's a set piece, but he plays them both on side and then he just runs past Van Basten. It's really weird, like his brain has malfunctioned. So if he mm-hmm. tries to challenge Van Basten, the goal probably doesn't happen. Um... So, yeah, and the other thing, like you mentioned, the snap, I love that snap of his neck. It reminded me of um, certain fast bowlers have a real snap of the wrist as they kind of zing the ball down, like Andrew Flintoff, and it reminded me of that. Um, 
And actually, I think this goal was really significant because of the way the game had started. USSR was dominant. Netherlands were quite happy playing deep, hitting the ball, playing the counter-attack. And I think it's really significant because in the tournament to this point, USSR had only been behind for 36 minutes against Ireland. Netherlands mm. had only been ahead for 38 minutes against everyone across the whole tournament. Um, and it wasn't quite the USSR didn't know what to do because the game kind of continued, but I think it was important. They, they were rattled. They were not to go behind. Yeah, and they, they were also were, they, kind of they looked team. rattled. And of course, yeah. in the first game, they played brilliantly on the counter against yeah. Levens, which didn't happen in this game because of the way it panned out. But I do think that was a really important moment. And you forget how little Holland were ahead in the tournament. For, like, yeah. Th- yeah, 38 minutes against England, Ireland and West Germany. Yeah. yeah. And they, they, I, I think they do look rattled immediately after that goal. All of a sudden, these passes are, are so slight. Wild tackles. They kind of lose their, their, their run themselves. A decent chance um, uh, for Mikhailichenko, I think, near... Uh, oh, sorry, I uh, uh, great pass from Mikhailichenko for for Belanov, but um, it, it doesn't really come to anything. But you, you're, you're absolutely right. I think their their plan, as it had been successfully deployed thus far, was to not go behind. And if they they can get that goal, they're they're, they're really well set. Um, interesting at half time, just as the the teams are coming off, as John Watson hands back to dear old Desmond Lyon in the the, the grandstand studio. Um, you're talking about the revenue from. The, the, the tournament and that this was big business. I think both the Dutch and the USSR would walk away with something around £1.75 million. I think that's um, just about four and a half, maybe, um, in, in today. But even England, in disgrace, uh, walking away with 750 k which is just about £2 million quid now. Um, and certainly the, the appreciation that this was maybe no longer a uh, kind of honourable, amateurish um, in pursuit that international football was. This was for honour, it was for caps, it was for you know national pride and, and, and glory. That the, 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 there was something in this, you know, um, which was from the future. Jonathan, is that fair? Have we seen that that, that kind of um, marketing, commercialisation of the, the, the European Championships before before West Germany? Um, well, 84 was really make or break for the Euros. Uh, 1980 had been a disaster in terms mm. of stadiums were empty, football was dreadful. Um, TV viewers generally gave it a miss so uh, they, they threw everything they had financially at the marketing of 84, it paid off in spades uh, it was a great tournament, huge crowds, well I say huge but all the stadiums held about 40 or 50 but they were all full mostly um, so 88 um, yes they, they did the same thing again uh, clever marketing um, they were they were lucky in a sense well I say lucky um, the Dutch qualified because of um, a bit of chicanery, might we say, by UEFA. Yeah. Uh, smoke bomb thrown into the into the goal mouth of Cyprus in the final qualifier. The Cypriot keeper, Haritu, had to go off. The Dutch won 8-0. Johnny Bosman scored five goals. Uh, uh, Greece, who were second in the group, wanted, a, wanted uh, Cyprus to be given a walkover, which would then put them in pole position to qualify in the last game. But UEFA had to think about it and, and realised the Dutch would bring 20 or 30,000 fans to West Germany the TV money would be better. Their, their support base would spend a lot in Germany. So it was a no-brainer. So they, they uh, settled for a replay behind closed doors. And, of course, the Dutch won that easily enough, uh, 4-0. Um, as for the... Um, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, I mean, the, at, at, at Euro 88, the crowds were very good. The stadiums were all much much bigger than France. Mm. Even though almost all of them had the dreaded uh, running track behind them. The attendances were very good. Uh, I think there was 
something like 65,000 at our game, Ireland's game against uh, the USSR in Hanover. Um, even though the USSR had brought no traveling support whatsoever, nearly a couple of hundred handpicked people from who who are well connected. Um, it was I haven't got the figures to hand right now, but it certainly it certainly turned a big profit compared to eighty four, let alone nineteen eighty. So there was this sense that um, all the time uh, the ante was being upped financially as far as the euros went. Of course, it's now gone much too far in the other direction where you've you've so many teams and far too many matches being played just to get rid of eight teams or whatever. But uh, but in the 80s, yeah, there was now a sense this this event was on the up and up. And the World Cup's going to take that on and then some, of course, um, um, get into the 90s and, and, and beyond. Um, back to the football then. Uh, Soviet Union have got a lot to do. Zavarov, uh, good effort actually, just, just goes wide and, and over. And then he's robbed in the middle of the pitch um, uh, by Van... Tegon, I think, um, out to Arnold Muren. Long, deep, I would say hopeful cross, but it's, it's it's maybe speculative to Van Basten, who's loitering at the the, 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 the edge of the 18-yard box. It's very interesting that, that, that there is not a hint of tone, um, expectation, anticipation in John Motson's voice that something could be on here. He wasn't expecting it. Um, I don't think anyone was really expecting it, um, and we get as Jonathan Watson says, not just the, the, the goal of the championships, maybe the goal of, of any championship final. Um, it instantly, Rob, uh, a legend was was born. Any any doubts that they were, they were, they were there previously um, exploded? Yeah, I mean, the, there are elements of fortune which Van Basten admits himself with a goal like that. Do you remember the guy at Fulham? I think Kasami scored something similar. Yeah. So. Kind of average players can score a goal like that, but when a, a great player who's been the best player of the tournament does that at that moment, it just feels so perfect. I mean, he would say himself, I was looking at his book, he said a goal like that just happens. You know how you want to hit it for it to go in a certain direction, but for it to turn out like that, for it to turn out like that, dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just perfect. One thing I find really interesting is that, um, well, two things about this goal, actually. The first is that he kind of had a, an advantage over almost everyone else in the tournament. He was fresh because he'd missed most of the previous season. But paradoxically, being knackered within a game led to this goal because he, as the cross came over, which was over hit, he just thought, I'm too knackered. To do, I'm on my own, too knackered to do anything with this. I'll just hit it. Um, and the other thing is, and I, only he will know whether this is kind of, not romantic, I can't think of quite the right word, but he says that the ankle injury that ultimately finished his career enabled this goal because he'd already lost the full range of movement. He'd already had one operation. And because of that, he couldn't kick up full power with his right foot um, and he said had he been able to do so he wouldn't have scored and what he says it's a certain balance between unfairness and payback now I, I don't know if he's rationalising that or not but I, I mean it, you know it's, frankly it's him he can write whatever history he likes and I, I kind of like that um, but yeah it just feels like a perfect moment I'm trying to think of a better goal in the final maybe Zidane but it's labor because but I think it's better partly because it's a European Championship not European Cup but also because of the backstory within the tournament it's not just a great player scoring, it's a great player who has kind of slowly grown through the tournament to be what we would subsequently realise the best centre forward of his generation. So yeah, it's just mm. hard. To, and I, one last thing, sorry. I love that both Dasayev and Mikul's in different ways are left staggering around. Dasayev's almost knocked off his feet. Mikul's, who's seen pretty much everything in football, can't believe it. It's a like hand over his face. Could never imagine football would be that perfect. Um, 
Yeah. Van Basten can't believe right it. He's, he's, he's just <laughs> no, laughing, exactly. really. And, yeah, exactly. and Motson calls it the sheer effrontery. Uh, Gary, please. Well, I, I saw the goal in the room in which I'm speaking now. And when I look back, as I did, obviously, for, for preparation for this uh, podcast, but I've done it a few times. I've shown my kids the goal and stuff like that. When Muren puts that cross in, it's in the air for so long that you, you kind of know what's going to happen, but you also can't believe that it's going to happen. <laughs> it's just hanging in the air. Van Basten is so far out of um, the shot in some instances because he's leveled kind of with the six-yard box, but he's about halfway to the edge of the penalty area. So he's kind of six yards out and nine yards wide, I would, I would say. Even further. Yeah. yeah, maybe even further. And you just can't believe it's going to happen. And then when it does happen, it's so outrageously perfect. The ball describes a very sort of shallow parameter with a bit of topspin that's just enough to get it over Dasayev, but also to get it to, into the goal and quite comfortably into the goal. It hits the side netting, but it's been over the line for a while then because of that outrageously acute angle. And it doesn't go in sort of just under the crossbar. It, it it's just a, a perfect moment. And the other element of it, of course, is that having talked about the eroticizing of Trude Hullet, Van Basten was known as the swan. And I think there's definitely an element of that that is referring to Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake, because he is one of the more, in fact, most balletic players I've seen. He does everything with that grace of movement, that ease. And there's an irony, of course, because... As you've already referred to, uh, Rob, he was already suffering from the injuries that would uh, finish his career at 28. But it, it really is balletic how that, that ball lands and then the the kind of motion that his body describes in, in the air and then the ball flying in, in there. And he runs away more or less to the same part of the field that Maradona ran away to when he scored that hand of God goal. And there's a kind of equal disbelief, but for very different reasons on the, the faces of the goal scorers. Um, you can never get tired of watching that goal uh, in its surprise, in its execution, and obviously in its importance. And I definitely have it as the best goal in the final that I've seen. Yeah, um, just just quickly, if you look at it again, he's about two feet off the ground when he hits it as well. So there's there's all kinds of layers of technique going on. That's have remained bitter about it for years. It probably still is. He basically said it was a lucky strike. Like if he tried, if he tried to do it a hundred times again, he'd never get it. Um, I I don't know what he's talking about. The, the point is that he did do it in 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 the moment that it mattered most of all. Like the the crowning, it ended up being the crowning glory of the guy's career. You know what I mean? And um. Belenov uh, was more realistic about it. He said the only way Dasayev is keeping that out of his, is if he's five metres tall. So, uh, you know, it, it, that, was, that was a bit more magnanimous about it, really. But, um, yeah. yeah, just to do it in that setting at that moment, I mean, that's you, you cannot say it's a lucky strike when he... So what if he mightn't have been able to nail it in training? Like, who cares? You know? Hmm. Is it the best then? In, in international finals, World Cups, European Championships, Copa America, whatever. I mean, I, I guess Carlos Alberto tends to hold that that honour from Mexico, nineteen seventy. Um, the Di Maria but, goal in Qatar last year as well was pretty good too, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The, the the big move involving Messi and Di yeah. Maria finished at the far post, I think. Certainly up there, though, of course. I think 
Van Basten's, I think, is the most kind of awesome in the truest sense of the word. So I'll probably go for that. But I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't Team goals are more aesthetically pleasing now, I, I, in some kind of satisfactory sense that it's it's it is on the training ground it has been worked it has been moved um, it has been prepared and prepared and prepared and then executed that's just a spark of inspiration a spark of absolute brutal beauty um and whereas Hulett's previous couple of years i guess propelled him to that moment this propels van basten for the next Couple two two three years with with, with Milan because his his numbers are are outrageous after after that by Italian standards of the time, uh, of course. Okay, the game kind of looks done, but not yet. Um, Belenov hits the post, and then the most unnecessary foul ever seen in in the the, the history of association football by Van Broeklin. Um, it's Gotsmanov, isn't it? He's going out of play. There's no real drama and he, he he just brings him brings him down in a heap rob yeah two things on that he'd been kind of like a cat hot to roof all tournament and he mm. picking fights with west german players still did very well um i actually and i'm in an absolute minority of one here i don't think it's a foul by the standards of 88 if you look at it and even Mikkel says but if you look at it he gets a slight fist on the ball before he takes got one of out now in 2023 that is clearly a foul i remember one in the FA Cup semi-final last year. I would argue that if the referee sees him get a fist on the ball, he doesn't give it. I might be talking nonsense here, but anyway, he gets a really slight fist on the ball. Then he goes. Now, whether it should be foul is different. I just think by the standards of that time, I'm not 100 percent sure it's foul. Um, before, yeah. Anyway, I, I just wanted to ask Jonathan. There was a great bit in his book about um, the penalty research that Van Broeklin did, both yeah, this and um... so. Before the European Cup final, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, because he's the hero at this moment, time, isn't he? He's, he's the hero of Europe, European goalkeepers. He'd saved, yeah. he'd, he'd won the, uh, the European Cup for PSV just bought weeks before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no iPads in those days. There was a bunch of players on the Dutch team who 88 was the year where they swept the board completely. They won the domestic treble, they won the European Cup, and then five or six of them went off to uh, West Germany and won Euro 88. In Van Brooklyn's case, he saved a penalty from Antonio Veloso, I think, of Benfica in an otherwise absolutely appalling final in Stuttgart about a month before this match. And uh, so Van Brooklyn, um, before that European Cup final, he'd, he'd rung up a guy called Jan Recker, who was a coach with one of the Eredivisie teams. And this guy happened to have compiled a database made of cards about penalty takers. He, he kept this thing on the go for about 15 years. And uh, so Van Brooklyn gets in, in touch with this guy who shares his archive with him. And uh, so he guesses right on the night in Stuttgart to save Veloso's penalty. PSV win the European Cup. There's also a card in there about Belenov. And uh, before the Euros, Van Brooklyn obviously copied all these cards and had a look. The other thing to remember is that um, there was a big delay of about two minutes before Belenov could take the kick, which obviously wouldn't have done him any favours. And he hits it with a lot of power, but it's not that well aimed. It's, it's the right height for Van Brooklyn. And it smashes off his knee and goes out for a corner. Um, Belenov got plenty of power into it but unfortunately it's just the right height for Van Brooklyn and you have to imagine the, the long delay before being allowed to take it. Um, I think it was just held up by various Dutch players standing around on the penalty yeah. spot. The, the usual guff, you know. Um, the referee was Michel Votro who was very experienced uh, but there's nothing you can you can really do if players are just sort of hobbling around uh, refusing to let the thing be taken quickly. Rob? Yeah, please excuse the printing in the background first. Yeah, um, the, on the penalty, the Soviet Union had three penalty takers, Belenov, Protosov, Mikhailichenko. 
Lobanovsky said they wanted to basically he was happy for whoever felt best psychologically to take it. And I would argue Belenov was the most desperate to score, which isn't quite the same thing. In fact, it's not remotely the same thing. I think he'd been a bit unsettled by the two previous misses. When he hits the post, he kind of throws his hands in a little tantrum. Reminds me of that scene in Fargo where Major Macy's trying to scrape the thing off the windshield and he ends up just throwing it like a child. It's brilliant. Um, so I actually think, it, I don't think it was a great penalty. Um, and I don't know how, I'd love to know the process that somebody take it, should take it, but I don't think he was the right man. And finally, Van Brooklyn was about four miles off his line, but in those days, that was kind of normal. No, I think not- he saved it anyway. Yeah, I think it's okay anyway. So decent penalty, good save, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that, that's kind of it. The Dutch look pretty comfortable after that. They're trying things, they're very fluid, they, they know they, they, the job is done. Um, few more good efforts, but two will do. Uh, and the, the champions of Europe in a good, solid presentation. Team is led up upstairs by a captain who lifts it and then passes it down the line as it should be with, with no fireworks and no stage and, 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 and no nonsense. Um, okay, uh, it seems like it was written in the stars now, but that, that's how that's how kind of history works, doesn't it? That Gary, that, that 14 years before and, and, and all of that, and this was uh, the, the end to that story that, that many felt had, had, had not ended, many neutrals had felt had not ended, hoped that it would be ended in Argentina and wasn't. Um, Again, I go back. I'm I'm not sure the game pans out anywhere remotely like this if Kuznetsov is playing. I think it'd be a very very interesting final indeed. Um, but were the winners on the on the evening? Um, were the were the winners overall, Gary? Of well, I, I we've looked back in detail now. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. Um, it's it was a very compact tournament, two weeks, and I think the USSR. Played a, a high energy game, very fit players, all those cliches of Soviet sport at the time, uh, some of which were, were justified by some uh, extraneous materials being introduced in some of their sporting programs. Um, but they just looked to me like they ran out of steam, like like the, the the air went out of the balloon when that penalty was saved. And sometimes that's what penalties can be. You know, they can they can bring you back into the game, or they can absolutely finish you off when they're when they're missed. And you know, throw it forward to Lineker's penalty against Cameroon. Had he missed that, then uh, I think we we know where that match would have gone. Um, so, you know, it's I, I think they were worthy winners in a in a tournament where you're playing three group matches a semi-final and a final um you've got room for maybe one off-color game but you can't you can't play badly and come through that tight tournament um so they played well whether they were more worthy winners i don't know Italy look a bit callow don't they they look a bit young uh, they didn't score the goals west germany are on their way they they they're the home team uh, there, they they would have been disappointed. It would have been, I think, a nice story had USSR won. Although, you know, we didn't know many of the players. I think there was some talk of Protasov being transferred, but there was a ban on transfers until the age of twenty-eight. I don't know whether Kuznetsov had to wait that long for his moves. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think they they were worthy winners. And another element of it. Is and we we got this more in Italia ninety, and I think there wasn't a little bit of a turning point in this, is that the fantastic support that the Dutch got in the stadiums, the replica shirts, the the 
absolute avalanche of orange that was all around. The television cameras played to this, and I don't think we kind of got that spectacle as much. Uh, we certainly didn't get it in Mexico in 86 because there weren't that number of away fans. Maybe maybe some of the Brazilians were there. But it was the beginnings also of large travelling supports, the, the use of, of replica uh, kits and colours to represent fans and the kind of spectacle you get on television, which like so much else has gone too far now. But it meant that that we were involved, if you like, even the side that beat England in, in Holland, there was that empathy with them because of 74 and 78. But it was also because the Dutch supporters looked like they were having such a bloody good time in the stadium and mm. you know, people having a good time are infectious. Um, I think it would, might have been a bit grimmer if uh, the Soviets had won with two, 200 members of nomenclatura in the crowd. But um, the Dutch won, I think, all was well with the world and uh, Italia 90 starts to loom on the horizon. I did have one of those Dutch replica shots, I think, the year after. For some reason, Cumin 4 rather than... Of ambassador, I don't know why why that was. Jonathan, you're the expert on on these things. Where does the tournament as a whole sit? I mean, I had seen it at the time. I think I mentioned this in the the semi final pod um, that I was coming back to, to this very much with that that Dutch um, closure in mind. They were finishing off this story of 14 um, years before, and it was more philosophical. It was full of colour. Um, but this, to me, was a, a real tournament tournament, if that makes any sense. I don't think there, there was a lot of philosophical stamps on the game itself, other than the modern attacking play, these two fast, um, strong, technically brilliant forwards, which I think would become um, more prominent in the 1990s. But the Dutch were a very good tournament team. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but but maybe maybe poetry's, or too much poetry's maybe been written about this tournament um, in retrospect. Where, where do you... Where do you sit um, on that? Where, where does this, this find its place in the, the kind of general um, spread of European championships? Well, I, I certainly enjoyed it at the time. I was 11 or 12, and obviously for Ireland, it was a big thing going in. It was our first ever, <clears throat> it was our maiden voyage. Uh, these days, like looking back, everyone goes on about Italia 90 over here, and there's relatively little talk about Euro 88, uh, which I, I, I don't agree with that because... We played much better football in, in Euro 88 than we did in Italia 90. Uh, leaving Ireland to one side, it was, a, it was a curious kind of a tournament in that it didn't really have any out-and-out classics, but it didn't have any stinkers either. Probably the worst game of all was Italy versus Denmark because Denmark were unfortunately a pushover by this stage and Italy bet them fairly easily but left it late enough to score twice in the last 20 minutes, I think. Um and the best game was probably England versus the Dutch, uh, which is a very, very good game. But you wouldn't quite have it down as one of the all-time classics either. You know, having said that, it was the, the standards of play. I thought was um, pretty good. Like, I mean, if you watch footage from '84 and then immediately watch footage from '88, you can see the teams are that bit more athletic, that bit uh, less loose in terms of tactics. Um, like someone like Fernando Shalana, who had a pot belly, he, he wouldn't have lasted five seconds as Euro '88. The pace was that bit more frenetic. Uh, the teams were that bit more well-drilled. So it was definitely a noticeable jump. Not a, not a massive one, but you could see it, definitely. I think I think it's, it, it tells us what we're going to see soon, I think. Uh, Rob? Yeah, just a couple of points on the Netherlands. I would completely agree with you. I think it wasn't quite the way I remembered it in terms of them kind of sweeping all before them after the group stage. Personally, I think they deserved it just about. And 
it's funny that before the tournament, everyone talked about West Germany building into a tournament. And actually, the Netherlands kind of did a when in Rome thing. They kind of just got better and better as it went on, um, a bit like West Germany used to do. I was going to say we'd do it at Tele 90, of course, it was the other way around. Um, they're quite open about how lucky they were. Mikkel's after the game, so we were lucky to even decide some moments. Van Basten in his autobiography, I think, says we were unbelievably lucky at times. They don't care. The romance, I think, came from observers and the press rather than the team. They, they kind of were yes. a bit more hard-nosed, I think. They were certainly more pragmatic. Um, we saw that with long balls. I mean, they are literally compared affectionately, but compared to Wimbledon in the Times in one article during this tournament. Um, and where's it? Fact, even Van Basten says that, basically, that, yeah, it was, it was all about pragmatism. Now, of course, within that, the great school of these players still comes out. But I do think it was, yeah, they were, they were there certainly wasn't the idealism of 74, I don't think. That's what I mean. To me, anyway, and it was a bit of a surprise, and that's maybe just my ignorance, and I've, I've not touched on this tournament for so long. But this was not an extension of, of 74. Even with the same manager on the same nation, and, and no. 14 years isn't that long, really, no. a, a difference. Even 78, I mean, we're talking about 10 years. This is not an extension of that uh, more liberal hippie attitude towards football. This is a tournament team. And a tournament, perhaps that sense, maybe 2010, although they, they, they obviously lost out in the final, um, but maybe something the Dutch could could do with bring, bringing back in their, their, their approach. They should have won Euro 2000, but didn't because, again, they, they just weren't pragmatic enough in, 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 in kind of key moments. Um, Gary? Well, that's a point I was going to make because when I was looking at this, I thought, well, I'll have the Netherlands won anything since? I thought, well, Holland, uh, the, the Portuguese have, Greece have, France have. For a long time, it didn't look like France were going to win anything. Uh, Spain have. But I, as far as I could see, the Netherlands have not won a Euros or obviously a World Cup since then. And I just wonder how long the odds would have been on saying that here we are, uh, what, 35 years later, and that is still... Again, correct me if I'm wrong, the only major tournament the Dutch have yes. won. Would you have been favourites for Italian 90? I think, I don't Italy know, was it was close by the time it started. I think Italy, Brazil, I think Brazil were favourites. Let yeah. me look this up because I did this a while ago for The Guardian. Hang on, I'll look it up while you talk. Yeah, I, mean, I, I certainly remember them being, being quoted because um, you've got Milan have just won two European Cups back to back with 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 these three Dutchmen but again whether injuries are are, are, are going to be a factor or not um I'm not sure well Rob goes into his Ladbrokes archives can we can we can we look at our, our, our um a little categories entered to, to wrap this up game of oh, sorry Jonathan before we go it's just one little thing I want to say about the Dutch pragmatism like I mean from for me like somebody like Jan Wouters embodies yeah. what they were in this case um in that position in 74, I think they had Ari Han, who was obviously a million times more skillful than, than Jan Wouters. At right back in 74, they had um, Reisberg in the Vajax. This time they had Barry Van Arla, who was the absolute epitome of the of the work ethic. Never got forward, never played a good pass, but didn't let much get past him ever. Um, the Soviet Union had no Jan Wouters. They, they always had this thing of their entire team nearly was guys who were 8 out of 10 or better, but they never had a leader type like Brian Robson or Sunes or Roy Keane. That's a thing they suffered for. They didn't have any Jan Wouter types who could really, really get stuck in and turn uh, turn the deficit into into a win. That's that's the thing they've conspicuously lacked for their for their whole football history. And it is kind of sad they didn't win because that that turned out to be their very last ever game in the Euros. That final, 
as things turned out. Yeah, and they were very Just, disappointed in Italy. Rob? Quickly on Italian 90, yeah. So Italy were favourites, 3-1. to one. West Germany were fourth favourites, so I'm pretty sure I don't know all time, but therefore Netherlands and Brazil would have been 2-3, and three, one way or the other, so yes. Um, here's a question for all of you. If USSR win that final 1-0, do we remember the tournaments fondly? Or no. I've always argued that Baston's goal kind of has painted a gloss on the Netherlands. But I think, and I, I did enjoy this tournament looking back. It was fun, uh, and I agree it was m- much more kind of advanced than 84, but it wasn't a classic by any means. And I do think we probably remember it a lot more fondly because of not just his goal, actually, but also Hullet, which was such a great moment as well. And the, sh- the other thing, just the joy that Gary talked about the fans, was also there with the players. You look most of their goals, they're smiling. Which sounds an obvious yeah. thing to say, but it's not. You look at most of it, it's, it's determination or back to business. You look at Hullet when he jokes, when he scores, it's pure joy. Um and that really I, I, think, well, if, I think I think the Van Basten goal does propel this this tournament because it's it is unforgettable. And it's because it's him, he would he would again going to be the number nine or the centre forward in um in, in Europe around this time. And it's Holland. It is that colour, it is that effervescence, and it's the projection of the European football public on what they felt was a um, a, a lost um, destiny from 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 the, the the decade before. If West Germany qualified, and Jurgen Klinsmann volleys that that in in the final to win, it's just a, it's another tournament, and it kind of kind of passes passes through as spectacular as that is i think it's a combination of everything that 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 makes it but it's it is in that moment that that it gives this tournament a status that um i'm not sure it it would have otherwise story gary well the iron curtain was a real thing in 88 I i remember in 89 i'm sure it was 89 it may have been 90 but i'm pretty certain it was 89 i um went to east berlin um and then got the train, I think, from East Berlin to Prague or something. And it felt really strange. It felt like I was going into one of those pirate maps where it says, you know, here be serpents or something, because it was so different. And we had so many years of of that breach uh, down the middle of Europe. And so I think if if... Protosov and Belanov and others had come in the immediate aftermath of that tournament and played in Scotland, in England, especially in Italy, and we'd seen them playing European club matches, then I think we would, and USSR had won, we might well have remembered uh, this tournament with more affection. But if you recall, you know, Alec Weeks was always talking about the big red machine, and that was mainly in ice hockey. But I think Steyr Bucharest got called something like that when they won the European Cup. So I think there's a, a political and a cultural dimension to us favouring the Dutch uh, and saying that we remember it more fondly because, because Holland won. I think had the tournament been f- even five years later, but certainly ten years later, and we were more familiar with the USSR players, and they played with that energy and that freedom that they played in for all but the last half hour of the tournament, then I think we would remember them fondly. And uh, Oh, sorry, go on. No, go on, John. Just very quickly. um, I've just remembered that uh, the the Euro 88 conspicuously had no uh, matches in Berlin, which wasn't the capital of West Germany back then, obviously but was still the biggest city in the country by a distance. And the reason for that was because um, 
the plan was to have a few games in, in West Berlin uh, Olympia Stadium. But at the time, there was a lot of East European representation on UEFA's executive committee. And they didn't like the idea of games being played in West Berlin uh, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, so they basically said, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll okay your bid as long as you don't have games in West Berlin. And the head of the German FA, the DFB, Hermann Neuberger, uh, said, all right, we'll do that. And he was persona non grata in Berlin for many years after that. He wasn't able to go to the cup final for a few years. Uh, so it just goes to show all the shenanigans. I mean, this is only the stuff we've heard about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know, you know what I mean? Mm. A quick, Rob, quick footnote to what Gary said. is that A few of the players did go abroad between Euro 80 and Italian 90. So Zavarov and Ladikov went to Juventus. Belenov went to, I think it was Frankfurt. But pretty much all of them struggled. Belenov kind of disappears off the face of the earth. He's 30 at Italian 90, but he's not in the squad. He ends up playing in tier two in Germany. His wife gets done for shoplifting, I think, while they're in Germany, which is just a really weird story. I'd like to know a bit more about that. But it's interesting that individually they, and it's such a cliche, but it kind of did play out. It seemed to struggle, um, whereas collectively they were obviously a pretty fine side, albeit one who bombed at Italian 90 as well. Yeah, I, I just to say uh, there that when I was first in the Eastern Bloc, the you know that it it had fallen. You know Gorbachev had uh, released those countries. So I'm not talking about because I did go to Russia under the old Soviet regime where it really was you know full on uh, Soviet political cultural control. Um, so it was different, but it was only a little bit different. And the culture shock for these players. Now I know that African players were coming as well, and and all of this kind of thing. But the culture shock must have been absolutely enormous to travel what was a couple of hours on the train into a completely different world. And we know from the Maradona documentary, okay, it's Maradona, so everything's cranked up to 11. But the the, the craziness of Italian football and to go from the kind of controlled society that uh, that Moscow or St. Petersburg, Leningrad as was, or, or Kiev, uh, would have been into the maelstrom of Serie A. No wonder they took a while to get their feet on the ground. Or, or you know, even the Bundesliga. So I've got a, a bit of sympathy. No, no, totally. I wasn't criticising. There's an interesting yeah. story in Simon Hart's Italian 90 book. I'm pretty sure it's Kidia Tulin who went to Toulouse and had to send, I forget the figures, but it's literally about 95% of his wages had to be sent back home because he wasn't allowed to earn more than the Russian foreign minister in France at the time. Um yeah, so that's another kind of weird aspect to it. Yeah, and it was all going to change very quickly. Um, but at this point, okay, game of the tournament then. Um, I will go for England, mm. Netherlands, just in terms of um, the pendulum swinging in action and potentials and sliding doors and everything else. It just had a lot more action, I think, than than most. I'll go clockwise here and I'll mix it up. Rob, please. Yeah, same. Not by much, but I love... Um particularly because it's kind of been lost now, but a kind of premature Jeopardy game is always really good with two favourites. So when you add that, the stakes to the excitement and quality of the game and of Van Basten's hat-trick, albeit I would argue it was two goals, um, Hmm. I think, uh, yeah, that would be mine. Jonathan? I'm going to go, well, we've already said England-Netherlands. That was objectively the best. But a game I really enjoyed at the time was Italy versus Spain. It was the second game in the group Sorry, second round of games in Group A. Spain had beaten Denmark. Italy had drawn with the Germans. 
and Italy usually their teams are packed with lots of experience, lots of battle hardened types with uh, eighty or ninety caps. This team was the youngest in the tournament. Uh, it was it's Euro eighty eight was seen as a, a test run for Italy ahead of Italia ninety, uh, and they they performed well. And especially in this game, uh, they were a better team than Spain. They had better players, and they were more of a unit. And it, it was the kind of game, there wasn't even that many goal chances, but there's just lots of very good play, lots of good moves to enjoy. It's the kind of game you wouldn't enjoy if you were half watching it, but if you were paying close attention to it, you'd really get absorbed in it. And it was settled about 15 minutes from the end by a, a really nice goal. I, I can't remember who played the pass, but Altobelli, the veteran of 82, he stepped over the pass, let it run through to Viali, and Viali beat the fullback, I think it was Thomas, and stroked a lovely finish across Zubzaret into the far corner. And I just remember... Um, I, I watched it at the time and I, I watched it again a few years ago for the Euros book. And it was, a, it was a, for want of a better phrase, it was a match for adults in the sense that mm. not, much, not not a huge amount of thrilling incident, but just lots of really nice moves all over the pitch from both teams. And in the middle of it, you had the subplot of Victor, a narky little individual from Barcelona, kicking lumps out of various Italians. And eventually, I think it was Viali had to go back at him and kicked him so hard that Victor's boot came off. That's how to do it. <laughs> Gary? I'll, t- I'll take a slightly different tack in that um, I think uh, Ireland won England nil. When you when you see it and the, the context of England going into the match as kind of joint favourites or second favourites in the tournament, having done a, a brilliant qualifying round, all of the issues of English football at the time become clear, the lack of sophistication in play, the outdated coaching, the impact of isolation after the Hazel ban. And it also explodes those expectations. Of course, there's too much in the build-up and then there's too much overreaction when they go out. But whether you can have Italia 90 for England and that feel-good run all the way to the semi-final um, without having the catharsis of being beaten, if you like, but at our own game by players that we're very familiar with from Division One at the time, but just better organised with clearer ideas of what they needed to do by uh, Big Jack there in the uh, in the dugout. Um, so in some ways, that's I think quite an important game uh, for English football because if they come back and they'd scraped through and they got beat in the semi-finals, then you know, there, there would have been a bit of kind of self-congratulation, a bit of, of well, you know, we're a bit unlucky there, business as usual, let's carry on. But I think that game drove a few nails into the coffin of a particular Anglo Anglophile approach to English football. Of course, it wasn't an immediate change. There was still Euro 92 to come and things like that. But I think we see the seedings there in 88 of the revolution that was to come after Italian 90 with the Sky deal and foreign players and foreign coaches coming in. But I, I, I go for that because of its weight of importance in, in English football rather than it being a good game. Because I think the past completion stats were, I think Rob, you mentioned they were, they were sort of, uh, there were fewer passes completed in that match than Manchester City would do in the kick-in uh, before a game in the, in the Premier League these days. Jonathan, you played of the tournament. Is it as simple as? Uh, I think you've got to give it to Van Basten, really. I don't think any other player hit the heights that he did. Um, all his goals were either equalizers or winners. There was no, well, okay, the, you could say the one in the final 
if he hadn't scored, they might still have won. But it was such a, an incredible finish that it's got, it's got a value all of its own uh, in, in that respect. I think it's got to be Van Basten. I can't, I can't think of any others. I mean, some Soviets have very, very good games, or, or very good tournaments, rather. Uh, Paul McGrath was sensational for us. Um, and uh, Klinsman actually had a very good tournament, and so did Matthias. But it, it gets for, forgotten about because they lost the semi. I think it's got to be Van Basten. Like, it's at, at some tournaments you have you have uh, top scorers who all their goals came in kind of irrelevant, semi irrelevant circumstances or against weak teams. Or like Selenko. Selenko, and dare I say it, Harry Kane in, in uh, twenty eighteen, he scored against Tunisia and Panama and all that, and he got a penalty against Colombia. I think it was at the other end of the scale. You've players who only came alive when the pressure was on. Rossi is the ultimate one in eighty two. Baggio in ninety four. Kempes in ninety eight. Van Basten's the same in eighty eight. Uh, Talk about delivering when the pressure is on. Like if if the Dutch lose that game to England, they're gone. Uh, that's it. There's they'd be putting out the reserves against us in, in Gelsenkirchen. So uh, yeah, I, I can't see past him for it really. Yeah. Well, obviously it's Van Basten for all the reasons that Jonathan has just uh, detailed there. But I, I'll go for um, perhaps the least celebrated of the uh, AC Milan Dutchmen. I'll go for Frank Rijkaard. I, I hadn't realised that Rijkaard's father had uh, immigrated from Suriname with Rude Hullett's father, and they'd known each other as kids growing up, which is incredible, really, when you think about the heights they hit and the iconic status they enjoy in, in the world of football, never mind in Dutch football. And just every time you see him, he's striding out of midfield with the ball. He's looking and playing forward passes. He's not blasting the ball over the bar, as Ronald Koeman seemed to do every 10 minutes in the, the matches that he played. And he just looks an absolute Rolls-Royce of a player. And I'm trying to think of, uh, trying to think of players who are not forwards, who would be able to slide in and, and play in today's uh, today's top level. And there's obviously the likes of Mateus and, and those midfielders. But I think the one who would fit in most obviously would be Rijkaard with his athleticism, his reading of the game, his ability to start attacks um, from deep. Absolute Rolls-Royce of a player. Of course, he was to blot his copybook with the follower incident later on. But um, if we're just talking about players and we're looking for something a little left field, uh, Frank Reichardt in this tournament would be very nice. Yeah, I think that's a fair show. It is Van Basten. Um, I think the change in Matthias was notable to me. I was really, really impressed and, and good shout for Klinsman as well. Um, but Matthias would get his, his recognition a couple of years later. Um, this might be blue-tinted specs but Alexa Mikhailchenko is consistently impressive in just about every every single game in terms of consistency throughout the tournament Van Basten is the winner but there are moments he doesn't play in the first game um and has quiet moments as well uh, but in the center of that 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 Soviet team Mikhailchenko is is a kind of consistent performer um wouldn't quite do that in Italy right enough but um he, yeah they they'd a few like that Kuznetsov if Kuznetsov had played in that final I think it, it could well have been a different a different story altogether. But yeah, it's all about who who grabs it. And, and Jonathan's right, it's moments and, and pressure being on. And my word, didn't he do that? Rob? Yeah, just on Mikhailichenko, they, they missed him really badly in 1990. I think he broke his leg. He was certainly mm-hmm. injured. Would agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the three I had were Van Basten, Valters and Rijkaard. Just a couple of things on Van Basten. So he gets five, no one else gets more than two. Dutch got eight goals. He's scores five, creates two. The only one he's not involved in is that weird goal by Keeft. Um, 
And I want to ask you all something as well. Around this time, we're really used to one player dominating a tournament. Rossi, Platini, Maradona, Van Basten. There aren't many after that. I can't think of anyone in the Euros. You get Romario, Abadjo in 94. Ronaldo in 02 to an extent, but to me, that's more about just the front three overall without Ronaldinho. Is it that our understanding of football has changed or is it just less conducive to one person dominating? I I don't know the answer. I thought it was quite interesting. I think that is an interesting question. I, I think he's dominated the Euros for... like this since. Zidane was very good in two thousand, but he went missing the final. Um, who else? I can't think of too many. Uh, some might I say the... Xavi for Spain because he was the absolute heartbeat That's... of that side. But he's suppose... heartbeat of a team that that has so many great parts. I mean, this is the yeah. thing. It's 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 a far more systematic approach, I think, to international football. Rather, I think football in general. As romantic as it once was, it can't be about just give the ball to him. But even then, for Van Basten to dominate that, you you boys have, have mentioned two or three other players that had fantastic tournaments for 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 the the Dutch as well. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it may, may be an eighties thing. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, okay, uh, Gary, I'll start with you then. The moment of the tournament that was not Marco Van Basten's. Um, volley in that final well i don't want to steal jonathan's thunder but for me the moment of the tournament and looking back on it of course it's different at the time but jack charlton's just sheer delight at uh, what was happening with the the island team there um he's got the white shirt on on the touchline i think i'm right it's easy to get these things mixed up and of course i'm looking at it to some extent through the prism of the wonderful um documentary on Jack Charlton's life, which if anyone hasn't seen it, it's just recommended viewing. I I watched it with my son who didn't know Jack Charlton at all, and he was deeply moved by it uh, as well. So watching watching Jack go through the emotions on the the touchline um, as Ireland gets so close and fall uh, to that ludicrous goal by Dim Kieft, uh, there, um, that would be a highlight of the tournament, apart from you know the Van Basten goal and stuff like that. So, big Jack. I will pick a Van Basten goal, but it's not. It's also not that one. I'll go for the one in the semi-final. Um, oh, you bastard! <laughs> which is a, a super goal, super uh, superbly what? Almost the last kick, and it is meaningful. It is a grudge game. It is a famous game. Um, it, it, the, the, there are echoes from from the past. All the narrative you you want to project onto that 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 particular moment. And if Baston had um, just been the most alert against a fairly shambolic butcherless England, and in a game that that could well have gone kind of either way, here was a maybe a bigger moment. Um, a, a clutch player really kind of coming to the to the fore, and um, yeah, that in many ways, uh, for, for a lot of the neutrals, that that was maybe the, the game of, of, of most interest beyond the group. So, sorry, Rob, um, just the way that <laughs> the, 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 the circle went there, we should really have, have, have prepared this in advance. But, um, no, not so. what was your moment? Rather, is there yeah, any my... non Mark of Van Basten wins now? No, I just I'll talk about that goal briefly because I agree with you. I love everything you said, the significance. I love how clean the goal is, the, the angles, the two passes, and then the hook the other way. And I also love the contrast with 74 again, because the story goes, whether this is romanticised yet, I don't know, but they wanted to humiliate West Germany, totally humiliate them. In 88, I just love it. It's such a clean kill, like a, a slit of the throat, that's it. You've no time to come back, nothing. They don't score in the first minute, they score in the penultimate minute. 
Um, so yeah, it's a kind of moment of drama. I absolutely love it. Combined with the quality yeah. of the goal as well. You won't know it will just turn to black. Um, Jonathan, yeah. your f- <laughs> final words on on this um, six part deep dive. What your your, your non volley moment of the tournament? Uh, I'll also pick a non Ireland moment because I'm obviously not a neutral observer. Um, a goal I always loved in that tournament it was the, from the other meeting of the USSR and Netherlands in Cologne at the very outset. It was it was the evening that we had beaten uh, England, and it was a Sunday, I think. Uh, so we're the entire nation is. You know, just waiting to see what these other two teams are like, and we're thinking, Jesus, maybe we can actually qualify from this thing. Um, so the Dutch had a lot of chances, didn't get going really, and the USSR just kept nailing them on the break. And for the goal, um, Vasily Rats, the most satisfying name to say out loud in the, in the history of football, I think, Vasily Rats, uh, hits this wonderful long pass from left back spot down the right wing. Belenov is there. It was the only time Belenov played well in the tournament, really. He's up against Adrian Van Tegelen, who's a good defender, but a bit slow. And he draws Van Tegelen towards him. And then he just looks to his left and he plays this ball all the way across the face of the box. And who's running in to score in full stride without having to stop? Vasily, Vasily Ratz thrashes a, a shot. Um, well, actually, maybe thrashes is the wrong word. Uh, places this wonderful shot across Van Brooklyn and in off the far post. So it's actually, it's, it's possibly the greatest one-two of all time in the sports history. Um, it was just a brilliant goal. Yep, it was, and Kiki has forgotten about, of course, because it's the, the, the first course, day, and they would they would meet yeah. again. Um, thank you, thank you all, thank you, Jonathan. Um, not just for your appearances on on the show, but the um, the, the the great work that you did that we could um, use and and base a lot of our, our our research on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Gary, thank you. Thank you. A delight as ever. And a particular thanks that you've stepped into the hosting chair at short notice. I really appreciated that today. That's Thank you. That's quite all right. No problem. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, lads. That was great fun. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, listeners. Hope you enjoyed this particular um, mini-series. We'll be back with other moments from the 80s and 90s. Um, soon and throughout the rest of the season if you want go back to the archive if you haven't listened to those before and a lot of brilliant writing on our Substack. stack um it's all there for you we will be back soon and until then bye for now <laughs>